Thank you, men. I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read a verse there, and then I'm going to read some additional verses to you. I'm picking this verse. We haven't actually done 1 Timothy as a series. Uh, We did Titus, one of the pastoral epistles. Uh, We did Philippians. I'm going to read from Philippians. And we did 1 John as Bible faculty and select administrators. And so uh, I'm sure that if you've been here any length of time, you're completely familiar with those verses. And I won't be able to add a whole lot today, but uh, humor me. Maybe, Maybe you'll get something, all right? 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. That is, taking heed to yourself and the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Uh, a number of years ago, I picked up a sermon by a very popular preacher. and I'm not going to name him. Some of you may know what I'm talking about. I'm sure some of the faculty do. And uh, he had a message titled, entitled, Brethren, Save the Saints. And in that message, he used this verse saying that basically uh, you could lose your salvation, though he doesn't believe that. Uh, what he said is, pastors, you have a responsibility, pastoral epistle, to watch out for your own spiritual life and to watch out for the lives of your people. And if you fail in taking care of your own spiritual life and you fail in the area of doctrine, that some of your people will go to hell. You'll take them to hell with you is almost an exact quote. And uh, I have noted that around in pastor's conferences and simply said, if you came in the back door saved, there's nothing I can do to take that away from you and what I do up here or how I live. And so that's not what this verse is talking about. What this verse is talking about is the process of sanctification. Take heed unto thyself and the doctrine your doctrine, what you teach. For in doing this, thou shalt both save or, in the sense of sanctify. The church is sanctified by the washing of water by the word. And uh, when a pastor watches his own life and is operating in the power of God, let's say it that way, and he is teaching truth from the word of God, he is an instrument in the hands of God to sanctify, to Uh, improve the church. The people will grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are three aspects to this matter of being saved. There's justification, and there's sanctification, ongoing, and there's glorification, what we will have as believers when we see Jesus, when he comes for us, or when we go to meet with him. And so uh, that's not the introduction. That's just the introduction to the introduction. And so if you'll turn... Uh, to Philippians, if you'd like, or I'm just going to read it. You're familiar uh, with these verses, I'm sure. Chapter 2, verse 12, right after we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is highly exalted and given a name above every name, that every tongue shall confess, it says this, Wherefore, it's connected, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. So again, we're talking about sanctification. God's part and our part to work out 
what God has worked in. One final passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 5, and I'd like to, right after it talks about the sin unto death, uh, the person that rebels or stiff arms God as a believer and uh, has a short time on the earth because God takes him home, and I believe that's what this is teaching, God takes him home, and we might say prematurely if there's any uh, time factor with God like that, but he is taken home, and there's no more opportunity for sanctification in his life. And that is followed up by this. Verse 18 of chapter 5, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies, lies in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and that we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, even eternal life. And Pastor Mary, I mentioned this verse about idols. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Again, what's it say? He keeps himself in verse 18. And verse 21, the command is, keep yourselves uh, from idols. It sounds like there's some human responsibility, responsibility on our part in this matter of sanctification. 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world lies in wickedness. We know it, it says. We know that. And certainly, look around, you know that the world lies in wickedness. The physical world, certainly the political world, the personal spiritual world that we live in, we know very well that the whole world lies in wickedness, in control of the wicked one, depravity abounds. And so I say it this way, the world is not a nice place to live. If you get to looking around, if you think it is, you don't get out much, okay? It's corrupt in every part. The signs of death and awful brutality are everywhere in our history, past and present. The gas chambers of German concentration camps, the killing fields of Cambodia, the iron fist of Stalin, the brutality of the Soviet socialist, 40 million lives exterminated under Mao in his industrial revolution. There's slavery, there's forced prostitution, there's every act of child molestation, Uh, All these are realities in our world. This world is corrupted by sin. We know that as we begin to examine, and it doesn't take deep examination. Nature has not been unaffected. It testifies to the fallen condition of the entire world. The lion chases down the stately giraffe. The, The hyenas converge for the leftovers while the vultures wait for the leftovers of the leftovers. My wife and I saw that food chain firsthand when we were in Kruger Game Reserve. Uh, We saw the hyenas with the leg of the giraffe in their mouth. Uh, We saw uh, the lions uh, taking their game, and we saw vultures sitting around waiting for the hyenas to get done uh, with their feast. Over and over again. Yet the corruption within the human heart and our own heart is our biggest challenge. Jesus listed the many vile sins that proceed from the heart of man, mankind. All of us, and this generation particularly, I think are infected 
with too high expectations for others, whether it be government or church or school or authorities. Somehow we act surprised uh, when bad things happen and people commit serious acts of sin. And at the same time, there is too little resistance and too little guarding of ourselves from the power and pressure of this age. You know, today, most people are becoming more absorbed into the culture and then less satisfied with the result of being absorbed into the culture. They see the weaknesses and inconsistencies of our government and they are determining that the solution is found maybe in some other form of government, often based on some kind of utopian foundation that simply ignores the depravity of man and looks wonderful on paper. Our particular form of government was devised because it recognized human depravity. And that's why we have what's called our checks and balances system, the the three branches of government. We are sometimes shocked that those that have believed the truth and even preached the truth of the gospel can be guilty of the ugliest acts of sin. We're too often living unguarded, culturally absorbed lives, and we then seem bewildered and discouraged with the results of that kind of living. Well, the Bible teaches us that the ultimate victory over sin in its entirety is assured by God for the believer and is assured by God for all aspects of nature and the world. God will be victorious, to be sure. The physical world will be redeemed. Sinners will be judged along with Satan, and God will be glorified forever. Now, the believer is kept by the power of God, but our personal, daily victory is dependent upon the power of God coupled with our own human efforts, our personal efforts in walking with him in holiness. And there are many shortcuts, there are many easy solutions offered uh, to overcome the power of personal sin. And many people have the idea that maybe there's just this one master key. If I could just find that one key, then I could be victorious forever over my sin. I won't have to fight so much, I won't have to labor so hard. Just give me that one master key. You know what a master key is? I came from... Michigan, where General Motors is a big deal, and I came here, and as president, they gave me a master key. I didn't know that's what it was. It says, what's this GM on here? Uh, Is that General Motors? How'd they get over here? No, it's General Master, Mr. President, okay? Dummy. No, they didn't say it that way, but uh, I was stupid enough to ask the question, and they were kind enough to answer it, all right? And so that means that I can get into any door that any student worker can get in that's on maintenance, all right? I mean, that's no big deal. So, you know, we have other security that backs those things up, all right, just so you know. Um, The truth is, there is no master key. There is no easy solution. And Satan likes to recycle them, however, and repackage them and give them back to to the Christian world so that they might think that there's a master key. And ha-ha, they found it, okay. There's usually, in the advertisement for a book, a question is asked like, are you dissatisfied with your spiritual experience? 
Are you discouraged? Is there despair over sin or sins? Duh. Any Christian that's ever lived any length of time after their salvation has gotten into a situation, oh, I wish I could over, oh, God, help me. That's the Christian life. That's normal in the Christian life. And then they present a system of living, like seven simple steps. Uh, There simply is no truth in any one of those words, individually or collectively. Seven, no, it's not, that's not right. Simple, no, no. Steps, no, and we're going to see that. A promise is made then that if you follow it, you won't have conflict. It'll cease, pressure will be eased, and there will no longer be conscious, constant realities facing us about sin. So what are some of the keys that some Bible teachers would suggest to us well, I haven't got time to belabor them, but I'm sure you're familiar with some of these. They, they say, just abide in Christ. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it ab- abide in the vine, and it goes on. Hannah Smith is a name that probably don't need to be familiar with necessarily, but she wrote a book a number of years ago, 1874, and it's been recycled. I mean, it's been reused in different forms. The Christian's secret of a happy life. It's a secret, but she's got to tell you. All right. She says, let me entreat you to give up all of your efforts to grow and simply let yourselves grow. Guess try it. Everybody, everybody ready? Now, stop trying to grow. Just, just for a minute. Just I, I, no, I, back there, you were trying. That's why you're failing. I don't know who I pointed to. I can't see you, but anyway. <laughs> they would say something like this. Did you ever see an apple tree struggle to produce fruit? Did you? Did you? Did you? Likeness is not identity, however. If you build a whole theology on that analogy you're going to end up as a real heretic for sure. There's others that say, just be filled with the Spirit. Others would say, identify with Christ. No, reckon, yield. We are familiar with that. We'll say more later. Others would say, live by the faith of the indwelling Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. See, it's not you, it's him. It's him living through you. Get a hold of that and just let him do it. You do nothing. Don't get in the way. Just let him do it. Nothing's happening. And it won't. Human effort is called for by God. Charles Trumbull in his track Real and counterfeit victory says, quote, any victory that you have to get by trying is counterfeit. If you have to work for your victory, it's not the real thing. It's not the thing that God offers you. The simple fact is that whenever a life that trusts Christ as Savior is completely surrendered to Christ as Master, Christ is ready to take complete control of that life and at once fill it with himself. Now, I'm sure most of you have never read that book. It just so happens I was given that book when I was 
here in my first year by another student. And I read that and I thought, man, is it that easy? And I found that it wasn't, okay? But I can understand how people get confused and caught up. When we surrender and trust completely, he says, we die to self. Christ and Christ can and does literally replace himself with ourself with himself. He goes on to say he literally fills us like, like we fill our clothes. Wait a minute, wait a minute. These clothes don't do anything of their self, okay? Does that mean I don't do anything at all? Just let him do everything in me? A.B. Simpson, the founder of Christian Missionary Alliance, takes this thinking to a logical conclusion of perfect health. He says, Christ's holiness, our holiness. Christ's wisdom, our wisdom. Christ's strength, our strength. Christ's mind, our mind. Christ's body, our body. We have bodily holiness, not just freedom from disease. Christ in him has become the source of all mental and moral activities. Christ sits at the right hand of God in perfect health. If we yield to the indwelling Christ, we can have perfect health. Yeah, that's heresy. I got cancer, all right? I'm telling you, uh, I'm walking with God, but it doesn't work that way. God has purposes. Paul, you know, had a thorn in the flesh. Trophimus, he left at Miletus sick. what's, What's wrong? Trophimus, no faith? It's true that these keys may lead someone to a new plateau of spiritual experience just because it's part of the Word of God to abide in Christ, to be filled with the Spirit. If you understand what that is, certainly it's what God wants for you. But the origin of the master key is experience. That's the foundation of it. All of these are based upon human experience and not a careful exposition of the Word of God. Now, I've been here 12 years, and when I first came, a very popular phrase was gospel-centered. And if you let me define gospel-centered, I could say, yes, I'm gospel-centered with my life. But that's not what they were talking about most of the time. They were talking about, really, the emphasis of justification. When we talked about a lot of songs about the cross, you you never found a song, uh, it's still the cross, like we sing, came later, and uh, you didn't find many songs like that where, based upon the cross, we were supposed to do something, all right? We were empowered to do something. We were called to carry it forth, and uh, you didn't see much of that. Most of the emphasis was on justification, Sanctification in that teaching is seen as a matter fully granted at the moment of justification. And you don't need to struggle in the issues of holiness. Every struggle smacks of legalism, they would say, and and misuse of the biblical narrative. That defective theology eventually leads to ungodly living, however, because it leads to antinomianism. No law. I do what I want. Uh, I refuse to have any restrictions in my life. I refuse to follow any mandates because, after all, to tell me to do anything is legalism. I'm just letting God do what he wants to do with me. If he wants to take me to a bar, that's okay. I'm willing to go, and I say that in the extreme. Sanctification is not automatic. 
We are called to be active in pursuing spiritual growth in Christ-likeness. Christian life is not to be lived passively. And so I got three points, and I know I got 12 minutes to do three points, okay? We have power for living righteously. It is God that works in us. We read that. The context of Philippians 2, again, Jesus Christ receiving all glory. And it's based upon that. His example of humbly submitting to the will of God, becoming obedient unto death, that should motivate us as well to work out our salvation, uh, to serve God with the same mindset of humble submission to him to do whatever uh, he would have us to do. That's the context. So what does God work in us? Through the Holy Spirit, God works in his children the desire to humbly submit to the authority of Christ in all things. That's great commission. Teaching them to observe, to do all that he has commanded. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15 says that we are to live unto him. Unto him. That's a key phrase there. In, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, it says that even so should we walk in newness of life because we serve the resurrected Christ. Literally, we are enabled to walk. He empowers us to do just that. Those born of God in 1 John 5, 18 that we read have experienced the regenerating and renewing power of the Holy Spirit through the new birth. And he places us in union with Christ, the Spirit does, and continues to empower us for holy living. There's the power that worketh in us, Ephesians 3, 20. We're led by the Spirit of God. Led to do what? Mortify the deeds of the flesh. That's what we're led to do. We're led to to live a holy life. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. And God continues to do his work to motivate us to that end, uh, to perform what he has promised to perform in us. 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. What's it mean to overcome the world? Does it mean you're going to heaven when you die? Well, yeah, it, it, it certainly includes that. The context of 1 John, however, talks about what the world is. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And that's what we're enabled to overcome. When we're born again, God empowers us to be able to live a holy life that pleases Him. As we yield to Him, as we walk with Him, as we obey Him in His Word, many different ways we could say that. By the word and the Holy Spirit, we have the indwelling capacity to discern the world's subtleties and deny all of its influences. We are able to discern the pressures of the world upon the mind and the lifestyle, and we're given strength to overcome. That's called transformation. He's changed us, and he continues to change us. And so to commit sin before we were saved was the general direction of our life. But now as... Sin has been forgiven, and God's Spirit has become resident in us. The whole trend is reversed. As saved people with a new life and a new nature, we have a a bent toward righteousness to please Him. Do we fail? 1 John 1, 9 says we fail. In fact, we're a liar if we say we don't battle against sin and we don't fail, but He forgives us and we can walk in fellowship with Him. And that's what it means to be born again. Number two, 
We are to save ourselves. How do you like that? Matter of fact, I titled the message, Save Yourself. You know, that, that usually gets interest, all right? Not justification, sanctification. We are to save ourselves or to work out our own sanctification. The Philippian text doesn't say, here's the key. It says, work out one salvation. John is not saying that a true Christian never sins. Rather, he's saying that a true Christian has a nature that is free from the bondage of sin. And this new nature gives him a desire to please God, not to continue in his old path of life. He keeps himself, it says. Well, you know, the scriptures are the one indispensable key to our sanctification. Listen to what the Bible has to say. Jesus prays, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. How much of the scripture? All scripture. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. It's it's the Bible. These verses smash the idea of one key. Jesus said, therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. In Matthew 8, 28 and 20, teaching them to observe all all things. Matthew 4, 4, every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Paul, as he talks to the Ephesian elders, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. And it's not just the New Testament, the Old as well. These things were written for our learning, Romans 15, 4, and 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now, all these things happen unto them for examples or examples. Every one of the suggested master keys requires a working knowledge of Scripture. Abiding involves having his words abide in us. Being filled involves yielding to the will of God, which we need to know. Identifying involves knowing and yielding, that is, obeying. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So if we're lived by the faith of the Son of God, we've got to know the Word of God. We can't escape that. There are certain analogies that speak of, of conflict and call for active participation in personal sanctification. We are soldiers at war. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Fight the good fight of faith. We heard about that this week. I have fought the good fight. Uh, The Christian will have persistent and perpetual conflict until he meets the Lord. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary, the one to the other. we got to fight. There's a battle. Analogy that I heard many years ago, I'll share with you. When When a new king conquers and establishes his throne in the land, setting up a new rule, there are often bands of soldiers in that kingdom, that do not surrender. They're enemy soldiers. These bands still seek opportunity to hinder and even cripple the new authority of this new administration. They oppose the policies that are instituted in the new seat of government. And it's the responsibility of the new government to wipe them out so they no longer remain. That's a good analogy. When Jesus Christ takes control of our lives as Savior and Lord, when we now belong to him and his spirit lives with us, we're still involved in the mop-up exercises. 
We're still involved with dealing with the predators of sin all around us and in us. God has called us to that. And it's not a passive life, it's an active life. Ryle, in Holiness, his book, says of the fight that exists in the Christian life, fight is a perpetual necessity. It admits no breathing time, no armistice, no truces. He goes on to say, a Christian's warfare must unceasingly go on. The enemy takes no holidays, never slumbers. So as long as we have breath in our bodies, we must keep on the armor and remember that we're on enemy's ground. I won't take the time to embellish. We are pilgrims in the land. We heard about being runners in the race, and we are farmers at hard work, uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, verse 6. And so what's the fundamental error? With those one key solutions, what are they saying? Well, each in their own way are saying the same thing, that we passively continue in faith by letting go of all human participation and all effort in sanctification. They say that we must keep looking to Christ in the same way that we look to him for salvation. Hannah Smith again says this, It is the duty of the clay to put yourself in the potter's hands and to abide there passively and let him mold you. To that, the great B. Warfield responded, Strange clay this is, passive in the potter's hands, to which the potter can do nothing unless the clay lets him. How foolish. It's false teaching. The false teaching is that your only effort is to get to the place where you put forth no effort. The only struggle is to get above struggle, they say. Well, why is this important? Well, sincerity and experience are not enough for us to grow in grace. It makes all the difference in the world what you believe about this. And how you behave then as a believer. Believing the lie or believing the wrong thing can be costly. You can lose your ministry. You can lose your life. Or sometimes you can even lose your soul. Those English professors sitting here, I found out uh, that this is a quatrain. I've had to figure out what I'm going to read right now. You know what that is. Oh, good, I'm glad you do, because, you know, most of us don't, you know, mere mortals. (laughs) Here's what it says. Shed a tear for Jimmy Brown. Poor Jimmy is no more. For what he thought was H2O was really H2SO4. In other words, it was not water. It was sulfuric acid. If you think you're getting water and you get sulfuric acid, you're dead. And if you think you got the one master key and you're going to live by that, you're going to find out that you're going to have great trouble in your Christian growth. You're not going to be what God wants you to be. So I close with this. What are some Bible examples of commands for personal effort on the part of every believer? Now I'm going to back up. I'll probably be a minute over when I do this because I'm backing up now. I'm not on the timer when I back up. You understand that? Um, when you get a command in the scriptures, the command sometimes, even in the context, immediate context, 
or even sometimes in the book context, uh, doesn't (coughs) elaborate on the fact that, okay, we've been saved, and now the Spirit of God is enabling us, and so forth. What it does is many times it assumes that you already know that. It assumes that as a born-again believer, you have the capacity to obey this particular imperative, this particular command. And oftentimes I think uh, people find criticism with certain preaching, and some maybe deserve it, but certain preaching where it is said, do this, this is what God wants you to do, and someone leaves and says, well, he didn't tell us that it has to be motivated and empowered by the Spirit to do that. Well, maybe he should have said that, but maybe if you listen very carefully, he's making underlying assumptions that you already knew that. Okay, the Scripture does that. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Mortify, therefore, your members that are upon the earth. We heard both of them this past week. And beside all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. That's a command. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. This is the first and great what? It's the commandment. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Romans says, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, the positive and the negative. Pray without ceasing. Be ye holy, right? In all manner of conversation, all manner of life, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just a small sampling. Uh, There are literally dozens and dozens of these commands, uh, admonitions, imperatives that we find in the scripture that we're to follow. And we have to assume that God has equipped us to obey him. We're believers and we're called to do that, to be like Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. I ask you as I close this, what are you doing this new semester to put the Lord first and your spiritual growth first? What actions are you taking? Are you just kind of going to be passive about it? I can tell you, you're in a great atmosphere, and I know that you're going to grab certain truths, whether you intend to grab them or not. But I think God wants us to be intentional about what we do. Our speaker this past week said he used to find a place in the stairwell. He wasn't sure it was legal. I'm going to tell you a secret. I used to find a place in the shower room on one of the benches. I don't know if the benches are still there. And uh, the lights were out. And I had, I'm going to tell you, this is inside story, and if you get in trouble, you get in trouble, all right? I'm going to just tell you that. But uh, I I can remember one time, the monitor, that's what they were called in those days, uh, he came, opened the door, and looked. And he was so embarrassed because he caught me praying and memorizing that he didn't say a word. Now, I didn't tell you that to make myself look great, but I'm going to tell you something. I know how hard it is to find a private place and a private time when you can be with the Lord. We used to put a towel on top of the door, you know? Uh, you know, you put a towel and shut the door so the towel would hang on the outside. That meant somebody's praying on the inside. 
uh, either individually or maybe they were praying uh, with a group and you were to be careful not to interrupt that prayer meeting. Now, some guys wanted to put it up there and just go to sleep, okay? No. But seriously, there are ways to do it. There are places to go. You can hold yourself to account for how much Bible you actually read in devotional time. You can hold yourself account to the spiritual disciplines uh, that are important to your spiritual growth. The Word of God is is paramount. It's foundational. Uh, That's what we must do. Practice the Word of God. So thank you for indulging me in a few extra minutes. I hope that you'll do something and you'll put God first this semester. Father, thank you so much for your grace today. We don't look, Lord, for one master key. You are the key to all things and you've given us your word to show us exactly what to do. Enable us to know it and to do it by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen.